Well, ladies, we have come to the final life, the final week in the life of the Lord Jesus. And Mark has quickly taken us through three years of Jesus' ministry, explaining Jewish customs for his Roman readers, as well as highlighting Jesus' miracles and his relationships with the disciples. And the entire gospel thus far has been very fast-paced, but he slows his narrative when he comes to the last week in Jesus' life to emphasize the significance of the events he describes. And Jesus has left Jericho with his disciples, and they are part of a very large crowd making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And historians estimate that Jerusalem was a city of 100 to 200,000 people most of the year, but during Passover, more than 2 million people arrived to worship God and offer sacrifices. And you thought Clearwater Beach traffic was bad. Woo! Tens of thousands of lambs will be slain as offerings for sin, but this year would be different. On this Passover, there will be one sacrifice made for sin that will take away the sins of all who believe through all of human history. And God himself provides the lamb, and it is his beloved son, Jesus, who is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God has a very specific timetable because it's critical that Jesus die on the Passover itself and not a day before or a day after. And as we study these final chapters in Mark over the next few weeks, we're going to see events take place which were planned by God the Father in eternity past to redeem his chosen ones. Now, Jesus is staying in Bethany, which is a two-mile walk from Jerusalem, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live there, and he's going to go back and forth to Jerusalem from there. And the first thing that we learn is that he sends two disciples to the village, and he tells them they're going to find a colt on which no one has yet sat, and they are to untie it and bring it to Jesus. And he prepares them for the expected objection of why are you doing this by telling them to simply say the Lord has need of it. And that's exactly what happens. And the two return with the colt. The disciples put their coats on the donkey. It's it's a form of a saddle, I guess. And thus begins what we call the triumphal entry to Jerusalem. Now, this is the most unusual procession imaginable. It's completely unusual. And I have to confess that the picture in my mind of this procession was somewhat like our neighborhood 4th of July parades when kids rode bicycles adorned with crepe paper streamers and our parents held flags and cheered as we rode past. That may bring back a memory for you as well. And the only difference was that these participants waved palm branches and spread their coats in the road. And nothing could be further from the truth because a neighborhood parade doesn't get you killed a few days later. This crowd was at least 100,000 people. MacArthur thinks it was probably 200,000. And it was more like a Super Bowl or World World Series championship parade. The people, um, excuse me, news had spread about Lazarus being raised from the dead, and the people wanted to see him for themselves. So those people were headed from Jerusalem out to Bethany. Jesus and those following, which would include anybody who'd come in via the Jericho Road, were heading from Bethany to Jerusalem, and they converge in this huge mass of humanity, and everybody proceeds together to Jerusalem. And the center of all the attention was Jesus, riding on a donkey, just as Zechariah had prophesied hundreds of years before. Well, the crowds are elated. 
Here at last was the deliverer. Here was the man who was going to free them from Roman oppression. And they're shouting, they're cheering, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Hosanna means save now, deliver us now. Now these people were not pleading for salvation from sin, but for blessing, prosperity, and deliverance from Roman rule. They had no desire to repent, and when they finally realized that Jesus is not the king they imagined him to be, they turn on him and demand his death in a matter of days. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, Matthew tells us that he sees the city and weeps, brokenhearted at the hardness of heart that is hidden by all the cheering. I don't know that anyone noticed Jesus weeping other than the disciples, But Jesus is clearly not swept away by the crowd's boisterous enthusiasm because he knew the fickleness of their hearts. Some things never change. True salvation comes only when we accept Jesus for who he says he is, not what we imagine him to be. But never before had Jesus allowed such an open demonstration declaring him to be the Messiah. And Mark has repeatedly told us that the Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but the time had not yet come. And this massive demonstration of Jesus' popularity was now a bona fide threat, and they would have to respond. Jesus enters Jerusalem, comes into the temple, surveys the scene, and goes back to Bethany with the twelve. Well, the next morning, as Jesus and his disciples walk back to Jerusalem, Jesus is hungry, and he spots a fig tree that has leaves but no fruit. It was a reasonable expectation to find immature fruit on this tree, even though Mark tells us it was not the season for figs. The main harvest season was in late summer, but small, uh, edible, unripe figs appeared in the spring, and since the tree had leaves, Jesus expected to find figs, but there were none. He then curses the fig tree and tells it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And at face value, the cursing of the fig tree is an odd incident, so we need to ask ourselves, why has Mark included this? And what is Jesus teaching the disciples? Well, the barren fig tree illustrates the empty pretense of worship in the temple, and Jesus is condemning the hypocrisy of an unfruitful nation with its empty He's condemning them with its empty religious system, which is centered around the temple in Jerusalem. The fig tree had beautiful foliage, but no fruit. The temple was showy and impressive, but there was no genuine worship, just arrogant pride on the part of the religious leaders. And what a great reminder for us to examine the fruit in our lives. Is there genuine fruit in your life, or are you hiding a prideful attitude under beautiful religious foliage that fools everybody else? Are you obedient to the word? The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart, and that is the fruit he's looking for. Well, then they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Now, the temple mount covered 37 acres. It was huge. Picture the Bucks Stadium. Picture big. And it was the absolute center of Jewish life. Jesus is going to enter through one part of that, the court of the Gentiles, and that was where the money changers and animal vendors operated. But he had not come to worship. To the absolute shock of the people, Jesus didn't assault the Roman government as they expected. He attacked those participating in the corrupt activities of the temple, which were organized and condoned by the religious leaders. Judgment always begins in the house of God. And what was happening in the court of the Gentiles was an abomination to the Lord. 
If people brought their own animals without blemish to sacrifice, they had to be inspected by a priest. And all the priest had to do was say, that animal wasn't perfect, and they would be required to buy an approved animal from the vendors inside the temple at 10 times the usual price. They also had to pay a temple tax using only Jewish coins. So travelers had to exchange their money at exorbitant rates. Think airport exchange at an international airport. You have the idea. Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, his son-in-law, ran the temple's business, and they became rich from their religious racketeering. Well, filled with holy anger at the desecration of the temple, Jesus turned an already noisy and chaotic scene into one of utter pandemonium. Money went flying. Men were fleeing with their animals. Benches were overturned. Jesus stopped people carrying their merchandise through the temple as a shortcut to get to the city. And it was just an amazing display of authority and power. And it forcefully demonstrates that the Lord hates those who pervert worship especially for their own financial gain. Jesus then said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it into a robber's den. Prayer is the essence of worship. And the temple was where people came to commune with God. And the temple was not just for the Jews, but for all the nations. And the only place a Gentile proselyte could come to worship God and pray had been turned into the biggest money-making scam imaginable. Well, needless to say, the chief priests and scribes were pretty outraged that Jesus did this. But the crowd still supports Jesus because they know they're being fleeced by the religious leaders. And they also are still mesmerized by his teaching. And so the leaders have a very big problem. They need to eliminate Jesus before he turns the crowd against the leaders themselves. And they have to figure out how to discredit Jesus, destroy his popularity, and convince the people to turn against him. Well, Jesus and the disciples again return to Bethany for the evening, and the next morning on the way back to Jerusalem, they see that the fig tree was withered from the roots up, and the message is clear. The corrupt religious system centered on the temple will be destroyed as surely as this fig tree was destroyed. It's coming. Peter expresses surprise at how quickly the tree died, and Jesus responds, have faith in God. Well, what does having faith in God have to do with a dead tree? Well, the point is that hypocrites don't have faith. They don't even need faith. They have their own self-righteousness. And it takes no faith at all to be a Pharisee because Pharisees believe that God owes it to them to answer their prayers because they're religious. And Jesus is contrasting genuine faith that expresses itself in prayer with self-righteous pride. Well, how powerful is genuine faith? He says it's the faith that moves mountains because the God in whom that faith is placed is all-powerful. Prayer that expresses true faith focuses on honoring God's name and advancing his kingdom. And the Lord's delighted when we pour out our hearts to him in persistent, passionate prayer. But those prayers must flow from a heart that forgives others because our offenses against God are far greater than any committed against us. Well, the next day, Jesus returns to the temple, and the chief priests, scribes, and elders waste no time in confronting him for the, his outrageous assault on the corrupt temple practices. By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right? Uh, they want answers. And Jesus was the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. He had no training that qualified him to act this way. He had no credentials. 
He did not even have a diploma from the Sanhedrin University. <laughs> he didn't. But Jesus had captivated the crowd, and the people were hanging on his every word. And if the religious leaders could trap Jesus into claiming his authority came directly from God, then they could accuse him of blasphemy and call for his execution. So Jesus responds to their question about his authority with a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Jesus is stunningly brilliant with his challenge, and they start reasoning among themselves, and they quickly realize there is no good answer. If they say from heaven, they're admitting that the ministry of John is from God, and that means that Jesus is the Messiah, because that's what John said. If they say from men, well, that means John is not from God, and that's also a problem, because all the people believe that John was a real prophet. So these arrogant, know-it-all men are finally forced to admit that they don't know. But actually, they do know the answer to their question, but they don't want to accept it. And they refuse to acknowledge and submit to the authority of Jesus. And he silences them with a few words. Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Well, the religious leader's challenge to Christ's authority was a massive fail. And in return, Jesus challenges their refusal to follow God by telling a story that showcases their unbelief, stubbornness, and coming judgment from God. The parable is built, as you learned, on Isaiah 5, which depicts the nation of Israel as the vineyard of God. And he uses imagery from everyday life to pull them into the story, which begins innocently enough. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers, and he went on a journey. It was a common arrangement for an absentee landlord uh, to rent out his land to tenant farmers who would typically pay him half of the value of the crops as their rent fee. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Well, this was outrageous behavior by any standard, and Jesus' listeners would have been appalled. The Greek word for beat means to remove the skin, and it just vividly depicts the severity of his treatment. This was wicked cruelty, and no doubt the crowd pressed in to hear what happens next. Well, undeterred by their defiant refusal to pay, the owner sends another slave to collect, and they bash him in the head and insult him shamefully. And I can just imagine the people shaking their heads and murmuring about such disgraceful behavior. Well, the story continues, and a third slave is sent, and this one's killed, and even more are sent. And they beat some, and they kill others. And the violence in this parable has escalated from beating to murder, and the crowd must have been totally indignant and infuriated at the evil audacity of the tenant farmers. But in a remarkably generous display of patience and mercy towards those murderous tenants, the owner makes one final appeal to them to do what was right. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. The crowd could not believe their ears. No, no, not his son. Don't send him. Jesus' hearers expected anything but this. Send the police. Get the Roman cohort. Make them pay for what they've done. That's what should have happened. That he would send his son was shocking, unacceptable, and even foolish by all standards. Well, the crowd's worst fears were realized as the story continues. The vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. 
Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And these greedy men, hoping to claim the land for themselves, murdered the beloved son. Well, this made the crowd angry. This was a horrendous travesty. And Matthew 21 tells us that Jesus asks, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Well, there was no question in their minds what the owner would do. They immediately respond. He will destroy those wretches and bring them to a wretched end. He's going to destroy the vine growers. He's going to give the vineyard to others. And the deserved retribution is swift It's final, and their self-righteous smugness asserts itself, and then the light begins to dawn. By taking the side of the vineyard owner and condemning the tenants, they've passed judgment on themselves. Well, by creating this riveting parable, Jesus made it crystal clear to those who wanted to murder him that he knew exactly what they were planning to do. And just as the tenants killed the owner's son and threw him out of the vineyard, So also would the religious leaders reject and throw Jesus, God's beloved son, out of the nation by turning him over to the Romans after they'd killed him. The vineyard owner will then destroy the rebellious tenants and give the vineyard to others. Well, what others is Jesus talking about? Well, initially, the disciples, because they were the ones entrusted with the care of God's vineyard going forward. Well, the parable had ended, but the death of the son is not even the end of the story. Because Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118, Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The one whom they rejected, the murdered son, is the centerpiece of God's glorious kingdom. And Peter later boldly reminds the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone. Well, Mark tells us that they wanted to seize Jesus in order to kill him because they understood he spoke the parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. And the, re- the leaders realize that they are the evil tenant farmers, and Jesus is unmasking them for all to see. And instead of repenting, they become more resolute in their desire to kill Jesus. They know they can't publicly arrest him or a riot would break out, and so they're temporarily forced to retreat. Well, Mark then relates a series of premeditated, coordinated attacks on Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders. These attacks are designed to trap Jesus into saying something that they can use to turn the crowd against him or something they can use to accuse him of plotting against Rome. Then they, the Sanhedrin, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Now, this is an awkward alliance at best. These two groups could not have been more different. The Pharisees were religious, concerned with the law of God, and devoted to Israel. The Herodians were non-religious, concerned with the law of Rome, devoted to Caesar, Herod. That was their world. They despised each other. However, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the Pharisees hate Jesus because of his theology, but Jewish theological views were of no interest to Rome. So they had to create a political situation where Jesus' statements could be interpreted as open rebellion against Rome. And here's their thinking. If we can show that Jesus is a threat to Rome, 
he'll be arrested. If the Romans arrest Jesus, he can't possibly be the Messiah because everyone thinks the Messiah is going to overthrow Rome, not be arrested by Rome, and then they'll abandon Jesus. That's what their thinking is. So they ask their carefully crafted question, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? In other words, should we pay taxes to a corrupt Gentile invader of God's holy land? Um, and the Pharisees are convinced that Jesus is going to say, no, don't pay tax to the pagan Roman government. That's idolatry. Their co-conspirators, the Herodians, are waiting and ready to pounce and report to Herod and Pontius Pilate that Jesus is an insurrectionist. But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, asks for a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Caesar's, they said. Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, this is the last thing they expected to hear, and they realize their trap has failed. And clearly, submission to government, even a pagan idolatrous one, is part of our submission to God. But you know what? They missed the key point. They were to render to God the things that are God's. Psalm 116 says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. What do you owe God? To love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. In other words, you owe him everything. Isaac Watts said it well, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. That's what we owe, and they missed that point. Well, the first attack by the Herodians and Pharisees failed. So next up were the Sadducees, and they thought they were smarter than everybody anyway, and so they weren't surprised maybe that, that the first group had failed. These were the wealthy aristocratic leaders, and theologically, they were the most conservative group because they accepted only the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in the resurrection because they said the afterlife could not be proven in the books of Moses. And they create this absolutely absurd story and their mission is to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people by asking him a question he couldn't answer. They expect to leave Jesus groping for answers, but he turns the tables and exposes their ignorance. Is this not the reason you're mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures? And the word for mistaken here is planeo, and it's the same root as our English word planet. It means they have wandered and gone astray. They are out there. And they have lost their minds is basically what he's telling them. There is no marriage in heaven, so the supposition for their contrived story is wrong. And therefore, their argument's completely irrelevant. They also don't understand the power of God because the God who spoke the universe into existence has the power to raise the dead in the life to come. Jesus quotes Exodus, one of the books they do accept to prove they're wrong. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, I'm sure the Pharisees were interested to hear this argument because now they know how to answer the Sadducees when they debate them on this point. They now have the answer. <laughs> okay, so the Pharisees have struck out. The Herodians have struck out. Uh, and the Sadducees have struck out. Nobody is doing too well. Matthew tells us, though, that when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together to plot against Jesus again. 
and they choose a scribe or an expert in the law to question Jesus. And this one seems a little more honest in his line of questioning because Mark tells us he recognized that Jesus had answered the Sadducees well. His question, what commandment is the foremost of all, seems innocent enough at first glance, but they were hoping Jesus would answer by giving a commandment not found in the law of Moses and by elevating himself above Moses, then the Sanhedrin could denounce him as a heretic and discredit him. Well, that didn't happen. Jesus quoted from passages that were familiar to all Jews, and he said the most important thing was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. And the scribe acknowledged the wisdom of, of Jesus' answer, and he agreed with him. When Jesus saw he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, most people take this statement of Jesus as a very positive, encouraging note that Jesus recognizes that this intelligent and sincere and open-minded scribe is progressing in his quest for spiritual truth so that he is right at the cusp of salvation. But if that were the case, why do we read at the end of verse 34, no one would venture to ask him any more questions? Wouldn't there have been ongoing dialogue to usher this man into the kingdom? I don't think the t scribe would have taken it in this positive way. To be told that he was still outside of the kingdom would have been an insult. How more positive could the scribe have been than to repeat back the very words that Jesus had taught and describe those words as good and well taught? And yet Jesus was still judging him to be outside of the kingdom. This man thought him of himself as an elite ruling member of the kingdom. And I think Jesus is speaking in cryptic language here as he addresses the major issue the scribe has ignored. That's the true messianic identity of Jesus as the son of God, the son of David, the king of the Jews, and the one who came to provide salvation and deliverance for his people. They don't want to accept that. This scribe is not far from the kingdom of God because he's standing in the presence of the king. Near is not good enough when it comes to eternity. We don't come on our terms. We come on his. And that's why Jesus goes on in the next paragraph to speak more pointedly of his true messianic identity, which involves his deity as the son of God. And the question Jesus asks is, how is it that the scribes say that, that the Christ is the son of David? The implication is that they say that the Messiah is nothing more than a human descendant of David. And the, the Jewish people viewed the Messiah as a national savior. He was a political savior, not the savior of individual souls. They wanted a military and political leader who would deliver Israel from her enemies. And so while they believed that the Messiah would be the son of David, they didn't understand the psalm that Jesus quoted. The Messiah could not merely be a man since David referred to him as his Lord. Jesus is both God and man. He is both, he represents both, and we could not be saved if this were not true. Well, Jesus' final teaching to the crowd involved another warning about the Jewish leaders. They make sure they're noticed because of the long robes they wear, they expect deferential treatment and adulation from their followers. They offer long public prayers to showcase their imagined holiness, imagined being the operative word. But the most sinister warning is that they devour widows' homes. And the scribes consumed the limited resources of those who had the least. They abused the widows' hospitality, defrauded them of their estates, mismanaged their property, 
and took their houses as pledges which they could never repay, all under the guise of pretending to help. And like all false teachers, they taught that giving money could purchase God's blessings. Well, at the end of a long day, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, and as he sat there, the Lord began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And it must have deeply grieved and angered him to see people giving their money to this heretical, corrupt system under the misguided assumption that doing so would please God and produce divine blessing. Jesus observed that many rich people were putting in large sums, and then he focuses his attention on a poor widow who put in two small coins, which amount to a cent. Jesus seizes the opportunity to use her plight as an illustration. This woman put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Here was a woman left totally destitute, duped into giving every last cent by the false promise of Jewish legalism. And universally, this woman is presented as a model of dutiful, faithful giving compared to the ugly backdrop of the corrupt pretense of Israel's leaders. But this is not a lesson on giving. Um, The Bible doesn't teach that we're to give away every last cent and go home and starve. We need to remember the context. Jesus has just condemned the scribes for devouring widows' houses, and this woman is a prime example of that. And she may have been in this situation because her family declared everything Corbin and they refused to help her. That may very well have been her situation. So she is not the hero of the story, the example of giving till you have nothing left. She is the victim of greedy false teachers who sound just like today's prosperity gospel teachers. So into my ministry and God will bless you. Prove to God you trust him and mail the check today. Send money and I'll pray from you from my private $54 million airplane, but I'll be closer to God while I'm praying for you, and I'm sure he'll hear my prayers better than yours down on earth. So this woman is a tragic example of how the corrupt religious system devoured widows. It breaks Jesus' heart, and those who deceive and devour the flock will be judged. Well, what do we take away from all of this? So we've covered a lot. Jesus has clearly declared that he is the Messiah. The disciples know it, and they believe. The crowds hope he's the Messiah, but have entirely wrong expectations. The religious leaders refuse to believe and are determined to kill Jesus to preserve their power and maintain the status quo. But you know what? Each one of us is in one of these three categories. Like the disciples, we know Jesus and believe him. Or maybe we're like the crowd who hopes he's the God who will solve all of our problems, bless us with prosperity, and make our lives better. Or we're like the religious leaders, determined to prove our righteousness to God by our good works, denying we need a Savior, and thus despising Jesus in our hearts. Ladies, 2,000 years have passed, but the question he asks us has not changed. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Father, we know who you say you are. We thank you for what you have done to make it possible for us to know you. I pray that every last inch of pride and religious spirit you would tear from our hearts and make us humble uh, before you so that we see our need for you in ways we've never seen it before. We thank you that you're the Savior 
that we can trust, that we can believe. We thank you for what you've done to make salvation possible. In Jesus' name, amen.